You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, hey, well, good morning. Uh, as Kari said, my name's Doug, and I serve on staff as one of our pastors, and I'm privileged to get to be up here with you this morning. Like he mentioned, Tim started his sabbatical that will go through the month of July. He'll be back with us the first week of August. If you were here last week, he said you would have a chance to hear from some of the studs on staff. Um, Not sure when that starts. This week you have me, okay? Uh, Maybe that's going to come later. Hey, you know, Tim in August will hit his 25-year mark of serving here at Severe Heights. And if you know anything about the last five years of Tim's journey, it's been exceptional. It started with a cancer diagnosis for Jenny, a very unexpected cancer diagnosis at a young age. And walking through sort of her battle with that and treatments, they did that as a family. We got to kind of come beside them as a church. And then he transitioned into becoming the lead pastor here. Shortly after, we merged two campuses with North and Maine. And then right when things started to settle down, a little thing called the pandemic hit, right? And then he led us through the pandemic. And uh, did I forget to mention, he is the parent of a middle schooler and a high schooler in all of this. So we are so thankful to have a church that loves us as pastors and as staff and who you want us to stay healthy as husbands, as fathers, as leaders. And you extend opportunities for us to sort of go away and recover and get refreshed. And I know that's what Tim and all of the Millers are excited about over this next month. But uh, as we think about this holiday week, you know, on Tuesday, it's going to be a fun day here in our community, whatever you've got planned. I hope you really enjoy that. But when I think of holidays, there are three things that come to my mind growing up. Three things. You ready? The first is family. No matter what holiday it was, I just remember being there with my family. It could be a cookout at 4th of July. could be an Easter egg hunt, obviously at Easter. It could be Christmas or Christmas Eve or Thanksgiving. There was just always family in my house growing up. The second is food. We were always eating some sort of meal. And then as soon as food was over, somebody would casually say, anybody want to play cards? It was, it was just like clockwork. It would happen as soon as everything was cleaned off. Hey, anybody want to play cards? And it was a particular card game that I grew up playing in my family. And we played it, I mean, for hours every evening. I, I can remember uh, being up at like midnight and being very panicked about Santa needing to get there. And I need these people to leave my house because they're playing cards at midnight on Christmas Eve. And um, this card game has a particular name. You may have played it. It's Rook. Does anybody in here know how to play Rook? Anybody play Rook? Okay, I love Rook. When, um, when I joined the staff and I went to my first overnight retreat, kind of getaway here, I was pleasantly surprised that after all the, play, the praying and the planning and the spreadsheets and everything was filled out, after we ate, somebody said, hey, anybody want to play Rook? And I thought, these are my kind of people, okay? If you're ever privileged to be on this staff and to go away and play Rook with us, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Do not play with Jonathan Phillips, Okay. Uh, here's why. He does nothing but talk the entire time. And by talk, I mean cheat, all right? He is a great guy, awesome worship leader, cheater at cards. That's just the way it is. <clears throat> here's the way Rook works. You stand here, they deal you cards. While your cards are being dealt, you sit and look and you think, these are going to be good. I'm going to get some good cards. Then you pick them up and you look. Sometimes you're blown away. You've got all the cards that count. You've got the trump cards. You've got the Rook. You've got all these things. And then sometimes you pick them up and you think, these are not winners. As a matter of fact, these, 
I don't even have what's called a helping hand. Like my partner, you're on your own. Like if you bid, it's yours because I can't do anything. As a matter of fact, sometimes the hand you get dealt is so bad that you can actually throw your cards back and say, miss deal. Hey, hey, I don't even have a point. I don't have a card that's going to make a difference in this hand. So miss deal. And everybody has to put their cards back in and we reshuffle and we go through it. You know, uh, that is a little bit like life. Every once in a while, you get a job that you got hired into and you had these high expectations or you entered into marriage and you thought, this is going to be amazing or you ended up choosing a university or some other path in your life and you think, this is it. This is, it is smooth sailing from here. And then reality hits you. You pick your cards up and you suffer some disappointment. You, you kind of are tempted to take your cards and you just kind of want to lay them back on the table and go, hey, miss deal. Miss deal. That marriage, miss deal. That career, Miss deal. That conversation with my kid, miss deal. That house we bought, that uh, business we started, miss deal. Could we just start over? But the problem is there are no miss deals in life. And you and I find ourselves consistently trying to figure out an answer to a question. And all of our time this morning is going to be focused around how do we answer this question? Here it is. How do we deal with disappointment? How do we deal with disappointment in our life? Now listen, if you are sitting here right now and already you're like, that, that's me, that's me, I need help with that. You're not alone. The room is full of people just like you and I who are trying to constantly deal with disappointment in their life. As a matter of fact, I would say it's not just this room. Most of the Bible tells us stories of men and women who had disappointing experiences in their life and they had to figure out how to navigate through them. We're gonna look at the story of a, a, one particular man who was dealt a pretty tough hand. I mean, it was pretty disappointing what he picked up and he saw. And he just had to navigate it. He had to play it. And he saw God do something spectacular through it. His name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah. He has a book that he wrote in the Old Testament. You can turn your phone on and go there, or you can kind of open your Bible and go to Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 today. Nehemiah. And while you turn there, it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to tell you some things about Nehemiah. Let's start. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of Nehemiah. He is the author of everything we're going to read. This is a first hand account of his personal life experience, okay? He was probably older and he was probably keeping a journal as he was going through it. And as he got older, he compiled it and he wrote it as a sort of a historical story for us to look at. But the first thing you need to know about Nehemiah is he's not just the author, he's a real person. Everything he experiences in this passage you're going to feel like you're connected with because you're experiencing it too. Why? Because you're both real people. It's really dangerous to read the Bible and think they're not like me. That's not true. Tim says a statement all the time, never put the people in the Bible above you or below you. You've got to be right there with them. You've got to see it and feel it the same way that they did. Why? Because they're real people just like you and I. Here's some words that sort of characterize Nehemiah's life. If you don't know anything about Nehemiah, I'll tell you what you need to know. He's a real guy. Number two, He's got great character. He's got great character. We know he's got great character because he has a very important job. He is the cupbearer. In other words, he serves the wine to the king of Persia. That is an important job because the king trusts him with his life three times a day. 
So Nehemiah is a man of great character. He's a man with a great calling in his life. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you know it's about one thing. Nehemiah, his heart becomes broken for the people of God because he hears that there's no wall around the city of God. So he feels this sense of calling in his life to go make a difference. He doesn't know what to do. He's not sure how to do it, but he's going to get involved. So he's a man of character. He's a man of calling. He's a man of great achievement. When he goes back, we're not going to spend time in the end of the story, but he does end up rebuilding this wall in the face of great adversity and struggle and pressure. At one point, the Bible says he was holding a weapon in one hand and he was building a wall with the other. And he did what what would take me a lifetime to do. He did through the power of God and through God's people in 52 days. He rebuilt a wall. But here's what might be interesting to you. He wasn't just a man of character, calling, and achievement. He was a man who experienced disappointment in his life. As a matter of fact, all of this calling and achievement came from a moment where he was very disappointed. So let's kind of continue on. So we say this is the words of Nehemiah. It is the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now listen, if you don't like history, just check out for two minutes and come back to me, okay? But I, like this, I think this is really important because it reminds me I can trust the Bible. It is a historical and accurate document. Here's why. The month of Kislev is the end of November, beginning of December. That's the exact time frame in which this happened. It's the very end of November, so Thanksgiving until the first week of December. That's kind of when we would uh, refer to it. In the 20th year is the 20th year of the king's reign, the king that he served. This king's name was Artaxerxes. He was maybe the most powerful king in all the world at the time. He ruled something called Persia. So you've probably heard of Persia, even if it's just in pop culture. And this king lived in a place called the Citadel of Susa. That's, that's kind of a tough word. Citadel means like an armed fortress. Well, it was really a palace that had a bunch of soldiers around it. So he was living in a city called Susa in a palace with King Artaxerxes, okay? Now, this is the same city and palace that Queen Esther lived in in the Bible. Uh, It still is here today. You can go to Iran and you can see the city of Susa. And there's some moments in history that are on both sides of this story. Just to give you some context, you might know from pop culture about a king named Leonidas and his 300 warriors in a battle that he fought at Thermopylae. Well, that was 35 years before this. And it was Artaxerxes' father. So it was 35 years before. And then you might have heard of a a Greek king named Alexander the Great who conquered Persia, conquered this same area where this story is set. That's 100 years after this. So it's 35 years since the Battle of Thermopylae. It's 100 years before Alexander the Great. This is a real guy with a real story, with a real moment in history we can put our finger on, okay? So what happens? It says that Nehemiah is waiting to hear a story of something from his brother. So Hananiah, that's his brother. Uh, It's going to come up right here. Hananiah, his brother, one of my brothers. Sorry, it's on the back screen and I'm not seeing it. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Okay, here's what he's saying with Jewish remnant. With the Jewish remnant, he's saying this, the people of God. And with the the city of Jerusalem, he's talking about the city of God. So let me see if I can explain. This is a little bit like a movie, okay? Nehemiah's doing his job in Persia. His brother has went on a really long trip to Jerusalem to go see what the city is like. His brother is now on the way home. Probably took about six months to happen, okay? To give you some context, the Oregon Trail took six months. 
That's if you could ford a river on your raft or nobody out of dysentery, right? Okay, but here's the thing. This is a long journey. So Nehemiah has been going about his business for six months. He's, he's forgot his brother's gone. And somebody goes, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Hananiah's on the way. He's, he's on the horizon. We see him coming. Nehemiah runs out and he says, Hananiah, what's the news? Tell me about the people of God in the city of God. And Nehemiah is so excited to hear what's going to happen. Look what happens. And Hananiah said to him, those who survived the exile are back in the providence and they are in great trouble and disgrace because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates have been burned with fire. Look, a city was only kept safe by the surroundings that it had. In other words, it needed walls and gates, not just officials on the inside. If you didn't have a wall or a gate, then at any point a bandit or a raider could just ride right through your city, take whatever they want and ride right out. Or take whoever they want and ride right out. Your city was exposed. It was vulnerable. Think what would happen in our city if you took the police away for one week. Then think what would happen for a month. And think what would happen if you took them away for seven years. Because there was at least a seven-year period, at least seven years with no walls. Uh, what Nehemiah is feeling is this great sense of disappointment because what he just realized is that the people of God in the city of God had only God to protect them. The people of God in the city of God had only God to protect them. And it was in this single moment with his brother that a defining moment happened in Nehemiah's life. This news that was so disappointing and crushing to him became the same news that God used to create a calling in Nehemiah's life. It's the crushing news that God used to create a calling. So let's look at how Nehemiah responds. Chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Original language in the Hebrew there, my knees gave way. My legs buckled. And there was nothing I could do. There was no words. I just fell on the ground and started crying. You know, Tim says that big doors open and close on little hinges. If that's true, then I'll argue that big emotions can swing with single sentences. Think about it. You've experienced this in your life. Think about the swing a single sentence has caused for you. Sometimes they're really good, like this. Congratulations, you're hired. Welcome to the team. We're so glad you're here. And that's so encouraging. How about I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. I mean, is there a better, more defining sentence than that? How about this? We're having a baby. You're going to be a dad. You're going to be a mom. It's beautiful. The thing about that door is it swings both ways, though. Because not all the sentences are positive. Sometimes they sound like this. Hey, you're going to want to sit down for this. Sometimes it's, look, I'm sorry. There's just no easy way to say this. Or maybe even worse, I'm sorry, but there's just nothing else we can do. Nehemiah, when he hears the news that the people of God and the city of God have only God left to protect him, his knees buckle, he falls on the ground, he starts to weep, and immediately he shows us something, that while Nehemiah's body was in a Persian palace, his heart was in a dusty street in a destroyed city. Man, his body was in a Persian palace, the life of luxury, but his heart was in a dusty street of a destroyed city. So let's look at how he continues to move through this. It says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Look, there are going to be times in your life when you pick the cards up and they're so disappointing. You would do anything to have a missed deal, but you can't. And the question is, how do you move forward? Nehemiah shows us. 
It is absolutely fine to mourn, to feel sadness. It's not supposed to be this way. These aren't supposed to be the way the cards were dealt, but they are. He mourns. He fasted. He, he brought himself to a point. He said, I just don't even want to eat. I just can't even eat. And he prayed. Let me see if I can say it a different way. This is like an emotional math equation. Mourning plus fasting plus praying equals this. He felt this news. He felt this news. It is okay to feel the news in your life sometimes. Why don't you give yourself a little bit of grace and allow yourself to feel the news? That doesn't make you broken. It makes you normal. It actually makes you healthy. So what happens? So Nehemiah is praying. He's fasting. He's mourning. He goes on in verse 5, and he starts to show us his prayer. He says, So I said to the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to see and hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. If I had to summarize all of this, I'm going to take all that big screen right there. I'm going to put it into a single statement that Nehemiah is saying. He is saying, God, will you get involved? God, will you get involved? This situation is so far beyond me. It's so far beyond my ability to fix or make better. God, I need you. He is simply asking, God, will you get involved? This is the same way Jesus taught us to pray in the New Testament. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Here's what he's saying. He's like, our Father is this intimate, close, it's a very personal term that he says about God. But then he says, my Father who's very close, intimate, and personal, who's in heaven, who's so far above and beyond anything I could ever imagine. Well, listen, that is a truth that we have to feel in our lives as followers of Jesus that as you read the Bible, you see this, that the God of the Bible is simultaneously above us and he is with us. He is above us and he is with us. He's ruling the entire creation at the power of his word, but he's close to the brokenhearted. That's why he's God, because he's the only one who can do it. So what happens, Nehemiah goes on and he prays for about three or four more verses. And I don't have time to unpack that. But he gives you a great example of what a healthy prayer life looks like. He just takes his request before God and he says, I need you to get involved. And, and listen, it's not, because you, it's not because you have to get involved. I'm asking you if you would get involved. And he's going to sort of end it in verse 10 and 11 this way. He says, God... They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Nine times in two verses, nine times in two verses, he says, you are your. But you know the one thing he never says in, two, in those nine times is this, because God, it's your fault. If you're sovereign, you're the God of the cards. You're the God of all heaven and earth. You could have done something. It's your fault. Man, he shows us a great way to deal with our disappointment. Because instead of laying the blame at God's feet, Nehemiah shows us what it really looks like to own it. He says, God, you don't have to get involved, but I'm asking you, would you? It's not your fault, it's ours. But God, would you show us grace and would you engage in our situation here? So 
we could stop right there and say there's two things that are just pouring out of the book of Nehemiah about how do we handle disappointment that we see in Nehemiah's life that we can apply in ours. And the first is this. When pressure was applied, Nehemiah's faith was apparent. When pressure was applied, Nehemiah's faith was apparent. How did that happen? It wasn't because he started to grow in his faith when the pressure was applied. He had been growing. And when the pressure got applied, it's what spilled out of his life. So what do we do to handle disappointment? Well, the first thing we do is get prepared for it. That's why you're here this morning. Probably is you're like, I want to figure out how to do this. Man, pursue God. Pursue a relationship with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The second thing is this. We see in Nehemiah's life that even though he resided a long way from the city of God, he actually lived close to the heart of God. Even though he lived a long way from the city of God, he's 800 miles. He's a three-month journey. He lived very close to the heart of God. Why? Because he was growing in his faith. So how do we handle disappointment? Was well, a follower of Jesus, we prepare for it by falling in love with him, okay? I started by saying that Nehemiah, at the beginning of this whole thing, his body's in a palace in Persia and his heart's in a destroyed city called Jerusalem. But after you see his prayer, you see actually there's a third part. His body was in a palace, his heart was in a city, but his hope was in heaven. His body's in a palace, his heart's in a city, but his hope is in heaven. Man, what a great moment for us just to be reminded of that on the 4th of July. Right? I cannot wait for Tuesday. Look, I live in Blount County, okay? Fireworks, baby. We're, we're going to shoot them. That's just the way it works. I love our country. Some of my best friends led the grid search at the Pentagon during 9-11. I've got friends who work in the FBI, who work in other agencies, who are Marines, who are naval officers, who are in the Air Force. Guys, I love our country. I love our city, and I love my little community and neighborhood that I live in. I have a heart for them, and I am going to celebrate them on Tuesday. But as a follower of Jesus, every once in a while, I've just got to remember that these are gifts from the hand of God. And I can't confuse the gift with the giver. It is totally good for me to have a heart for this city and this country. I just can't confuse it with where my hope is, right? Because my hope is in heaven. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. His heart's broke for Jerusalem, but his hope is in heaven. So we kind of read on and we see Nehemiah, he continues his prayer. And he says in verse 11, he says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man is the king. And the question is, well, how is he going to get in the presence of the king? I mean, Nehemiah, we don't know anything special about him to this point. All we know is that he lives in the palace in Persia, which is where the king is. And we know that he is uh, somewhere near the court. Well, listen to what he says. Why can you get, give me presents? Because I was the cupbearer to the king. What Nehemiah is basically saying in this moment is this. Hey, God, if you're willing to give me an opportunity, I'm willing to take it. I've been praying, I've been fasting, I've been mourning. I don't know what to do. I don't know how you'll do it through me. These cards are awful. But if you tell me to play them, God, I'll play them. If I could summarize it, here's a, maybe a way to say it. When you look at Nehemiah, you see that his yes is on the table. And his yes is on the table. God, I don't know what you'll do or how you'll do it. But if you want to do it, my answer is yes. So you move to chapter 2. And you see that Nehemiah sort of time stamps that. He says, now it's the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king. So same king, same year. Nisan is about April. It's been four months. You, you ready? 
He has been personally distraught and professionally composed for four months of his life. He's been weeping and mourning and praying in private while processing and navigating publicly in his life. I don't even know how to explain that. Somebody else can preach that sermon. I'll sit with you and try to learn that, okay? But all I know is he shows us an example that life doesn't stop when disappointment starts. It keeps moving, and somehow we have to figure out how to move with it. So what happens, it says that it's four months later, and Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. But I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can't be anything but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. Look, um, you don't want a sick wine taster. Okay, there's two people you don't want as your wine taster. Somebody who's sick and somebody you don't trust. Why? Because you are literally trusting your health and your life to their hands. And the king looks at Nehemiah. He goes, what's wrong? You, you look different today. And Nehemiah's response at the end is this. I was very much afraid. Why would you be very much afraid? He's a man of faith. He's a man of great faith, right? Why would he be afraid? How about this? Because he's real. And he's just like you and me. Let me tell you why he should be afraid. Because he has three options. Number one is he could lie. But he's a man of character. He's not going to lie. But he could lie. He'd go, I don't know, king. I'm sorry, case. You know, it is. It's a Monday or whatever. You know, it is what it is. He's not going to do that. So he's afraid. He's like, I don't want to lie. But what if he tells the truth? What if he tells the truth? What if he says, hey, king, you were the one who gave the command that the wall not be rebuilt. Um, I disagree with you. Here's your wine. <laughs> you know? Of course he's scared. And what if the king says, hey, uh, I don't really appreciate you sharing your opinion. Um, I think you're punished. Did you know it was actually a law for a wine a cupbearer, the one who served the wine to the king to be sad in his presence. I don't know what the name of it, the good vibes law. Okay, I don't know, but it was literally a law. So here's what Nehemiah was facing. He can lie. He can tell the truth. He can get punished. He can lose his job. I don't know what he would do if he had to go back out into the open marketplace. I don't think there's a high demand for cupbearers to the king, okay? We don't know of any other skills he had. He could lose his job. He could also be put in jail but because the king was all-powerful, he could also be killed. Listen, you may say, he shouldn't have had fear. You're not right. You're not right. He was not wrong for feeling fear in his life. It is okay for you to be a person of faith and at times still feel fear. Let me see if I can say it this way. Faith and fear in a, in a follower of Jesus' life, they're not friends, but they might be neighbors. Faith and fear, they're not friends. They don't get along. But man, they're always close to one another. It's like they're always dwelling next to each other. They're not friends, but they're neighbors in our lives. I mean, think about what faith means for you. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the willingness to push through our fear in our life. Faith is the willingness to push through our fear. Think about it. In your life right now, over 700 people have been baptized in the life of our church since Tim's been our pastor. 700, 150 this year. We just baptized two last service. That is a lot of people taking next steps to follow Jesus. And those moments, they're scary. Faith and fear, they're not friends, but man, they probably are neighbors. That's 150 people this year who have went forward and said, I'm willing to push through 
the fear of looking foolish. By the way, over half of them have been adults over the age of 18. That's a lot of people saying, hey, this, I may have had some sort of experience as a child, but as an adult, I want to declare it. Stake in the ground. I'm moving forward. Jesus is my king. Look, maybe God is calling you to respond to Jesus as an adult. Maybe he's calling you to go public with your faith in baptism. Maybe he's calling you to go tell a friend in your life, it's, would you come to church with me? I know that's scary. Maybe you tell him to wait till August when Tim's back, okay? I get it. Maybe it's time for you to actually take your faith public to your friend. It's time for you to say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? I mean, this thing changed my life. There was a time I picked up my cards. I wanted to call Miss Dill, but instead I gave them to him, and he did something spectacular. Can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you why that's so scary? Because this is a picture of what all of our relationships in our life look like. This is actually a bridge in Peru, and it's made of grass. It's a rope bridge. It's a swinging bridge. You've probably seen them in the mountains. We have them around. And why are these scary? They're scary because you're just not sure they can hold the weight that you're going to put on them. These are our relationships. These are our coworkers, our family, our friends, our neighbors. We're on one side, they're on the other. We've built this relational bridge between each other. And here comes Jesus. And he's like, put me on the bridge. And you're like, I don't know. You're awfully heavy. And he's like, I'm not heavy, I'm your brother. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know where that came from. But <clears throat> this is why it's scary. This is why faith and friends, faith and fear are neighbors. You see this, you feel it, right? That's what happens to us in our lives as followers of Jesus. When he's calling us to our next step, it could be to share your faith publicly. It could be to do something public. It could be to follow him in a calling to ministry. Who knows what it is? But it feels like you're putting weight on a bridge and you're just so worried it's going to collapse underneath it. Nehemiah had that moment. He says, God, I don't know what you'll do through me, but the, the answer is yes. My yes is on the table. So what does he do? Verse, verse 3 in chapter 2. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be, look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I love that he says, may the king live forever. He basically starts with an affirmation, not an accusation. I mean, he knows the, the thing he's going to ask the king. I know you said we can't build the wall, but can I go back and build the wall? He, know that's, he knows that's going to be offensive. So Nehemiah makes a choice that he himself won't be offensive. Like, it's just a beautiful lesson, right? Like, our message sometimes is offensive. Let's not be. And he says, hey, look, king, live forever. Th this is not an accusation at you. I, I love you. I'm thankful for my position with you. But my heart is in this city. It's with the people of God and the city of God and have a heart for God. So what happens? We see that Nehemiah, in this very moment, he makes a decision to move from weeping to working. Nehemiah makes a decision to move from weeping to working. The king looks at him and he says this, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. I'm gonna to try to show you what that moment was. Nehemiah had only done one thing his whole life. His life was characterized by wearing these. White gloves, soft hands, a life of ease. I mean, he was a wine servant. This is what he did. And when he encountered a severe disappointment of the people of God and the city of God for his God, he said, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm happy to give you these white gloves and trade them for some work gloves. 
I don't even know how to wear them. I don't even know what to do with them. My hands, they're going to get blistered and hurt. But God, if this is what it takes, my yes is on the table. You can take the white gloves and give me the work gloves because all Nehemiah had ever done in his life was carry this. He knew where all the right forks went. He knew how you're supposed to have your napkin. He knew what order the meal was supposed to be served. He knew this because this is what he did. They said, God, this is all I know how to do. But if you want, I'll grab this. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll agree to whatever you say before you even say it. My yes is on the table. Look, um, when you are dealing with disappointment in your life, I want to just tell you that sometimes the thing that you think is crushing you and killing you is actually the thing God is using to call you. The thing that you think is crushing you and killing you is actually the thing that God is using to call you. Um, I'll tell a quick story. I'm sorry, I don't want to go late, but I just want to tell you this. My mother was raised in a broken home. I called my mom this week and I talked to her. I'd never talked about her story. Her mother didn't bring her home from the hospital. She was raised three and a half years with an aunt and uncle. She then bounced around most of her childhood life through some sort of foster care of family. It was a mess. It was a train wreck. And my mom decided as a teenager, no child should grow up this way. And my mom let the disappointment and the crushing experience of her childhood be the thing God used to create a calling. She said, God, if you'll let me, I'll do nothing but be a mother. And uh, my mom's crushing turned into a calling that turned into my life. Because my childhood was not like hers. Because she put her yes on the table. And she said, God, I don't know what you can do with it, but I'll give it to you. Look, this story of Nehemiah, of dealing with disappointment, it's not a story unique to him. It's a story we all have. And at some point in your life, if you ever came in contact with the story of how God feels about you and how he loves you and how Jesus wants a relationship with you, this is your story. A point when you were disappointed with yourself because of choices you made. You felt like God was disappointed with you because of choices you made. Because sin had come in your life and separated you from him. And you thought, God, you're there and I'm here and I can't get to you. And God looked and he wasn't okay with us not being okay. So he stepped in. And he says, is your yes on the table? Because if you're willing to lay it down, if you're willing to give it to me, I can do something with it. I can do a special word. I can give some redemption. I can take this brokenness, this bustedness that you've got in your life, this sense that your life doesn't matter, that it's just a big misdeal, and I can redeem it, and I can make beauty from brokenness. If you'll let me. How does he do it? Well, he does it first and foremost by us giving him our earthly life in exchange for what we believe Jesus did for us on the cross. And we say, God, I can't fix it, but I believe Jesus lived the life I failed to live. And I believe he died the death I deserved to die. And then he was laid in the ground and, and buried. And three days later, he was resurrected to prove he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. And because of that, my answer to you is yes. I'm trusting you with my eternity. That is the story that many of us walk through when we came to know Jesus for the first time. And you might be in the room right now and that's the thing you need more than any. But the other side of it is, is once you make that decision, you gotta keep moving. And you gotta say, God, if I trust you with my eternity, I'm gonna trust you with my earthly life. 
So the answer today is yes to my marriage, to my parenthood, to my job, to my money, to whatever it is. God, I don't like the cards. I'm disappointed. But I'll give up the white gloves and pick up the work gloves if you tell me. I'm going to give it to you because I believe you can do more than I could ever do on my own. So our closing question today is this. Is your yes on the table? When you leave today, that's all I just want you to think about. Is your yes on the table? Are you holding on to a disappointment and letting it define you? Or are you handing that disappointment to God and letting him create a calling in your life? God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. God, we just want to be people who put our yes on the table. God, there's nobody better to say yes to than you because nobody loves us like you do. You're the one who saw us and you weren't okay with us not being okay, so you made a way for us to be right with you. And God, you are above all of creation and all of the universe and you're right here in the room with us now. So God, because of those things, our yes is on the table. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for wanting us. And thank you for letting us live for you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.